Father, we thank you that the word of the Lord is right and true. Thank you that you are faithful in all that you do. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who loves righteousness and justice. And we thank you, Lord, that the earth is full of your unfailing love. And Lord, this morning as we engage you in worship, we ask that your Holy Spirit would break out here amongst us. That you yourself would be ministering to us even in our separate homes. That we would meet with you today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you to Andrea and the team for leading us so beautifully in song this morning. I also just want to add my thanks to those of you who are able to and have been able to give to the COVID Relief Fund as we are experiencing more and more of the effects of the pandemic. We are seeing more and more people having to lean on that kind of relief. So thank you very much. God bless you as you continue to do that. So this morning we are continuing in our series that started three weeks ago. And we have looked at issues um, about racism, about diversity and the church. And we've considered texts from Acts chapter 11 as well as Galatians chapter 2. And over the past two weeks... Pastor Craig has directed our attention to how this gospel that we base our lives on, when correctly preached, actually requires diversity. Last week we looked at what problem theologies we must identify in our own body, that we must be honest enough to engage with, to repent of, to confess and to correct and we considered an example that is playing itself out now in the person of the President of the United States of America, who is seen as the fruit of the evangelical church's embrace of problem theology. And Pastor Craig pointed out for us four problems that we need to note and engage with. And this morning I want to add a principle to that list of problems However, it's not something that we should avoid, but rather something that we should adopt. And I believe wrestling with this principle will make for a deeper, more wholesome involvement in our ministry of reconciliation and our pursuit of mercy and justice. Today, we find ourselves in an unprecedented time. I've actually lost count of the amount of times I've used that phrase. A time of disruption and confusion and suffering. As the infection rate of COVID-19 continues to spread and the mortality rate increases, coupled with the anxiety that we currently are experiencing with the thought of our children returning to schools in this week, and the economy struggling to find its feet, as well as the resurgence of the issue of racism. We find ourselves mostly with opinions, but sometimes without answers. But yet, even amongst all of this suffering and this challenge, this confusion and this disruption, 
we still somehow think to ourselves that this could be a time for us to experience growth. Have you noticed how people have been talking about rethinking the way we do things? People are talking about the things that they believe really are important. People are evaluating how they spend their time, how they spend money and how they spend their resources. And there's this recognition of the importance of relationships in their lives. It seems as though there's a sense in which some suffering and some disruption and some confusion actually has value. It seems then that sometimes when things are disrupted, that sitting in that discomfort actually could lead to growth, could lead to health, and it could lead to a deeper spirituality. Now this morning I want to consider the value of lament in our journey and in our ministry of reconciliation that we are called to. Now lament is not the same as crying, and there is something about it that is uniquely Christian. I've read the saying that says, to cry is human, but to lament is Christ-like. Lament is different than crying because lament is actually a form of prayer. It is more than just the expression of sorrow or the venting of emotion. Lament talks to God about pain. It talks to God about feelings, about suffering. And it has a unique purpose that I think revolves around trust. It's kind of like a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, our frustrations, our sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God and our confidence in one another. Lament is an important discipline that's been largely lost, especially when we are talking about love and humility and mercy and justice. And I think that the absence of lament actually makes worse the absence of love and humility and mercy and justice in our communities today. It is interesting to note that of the 150 psalms in the Old Testament, 60% of those psalms fall into the category of praise and worship. Praising God for all the good things that He has done. You know, celebratory types of psalms. But 40% of our psalms in the Old Testament are psalms of lament that talk about suffering that talk about pain. In fact, most of the major Bible characters that we spend hours studying, they themselves poured out their hearts to God in lament. And if we consider much of Scripture, we see that much of Scripture is actually written in the context of pain and suffering. Jesus himself lamented in the final hours of his life, amongst many other occasions in Scripture. So, biblically speaking, lament is a very prominent theme 
in scripture that is most often overlooked. So there was this study done by um, a biblical professor, professor of theology named Denise Hopkins at the Wesley Seminary in the United States. And the study examined the worship practices of the liturgical traditions in America. Now, besides the fact that we don't have this information about our South African churches, it's helpful to consider these stats as we are very heavily influenced by Western worship practices here in South Africa. So these liturgical churches that the study was done on would be the Catholic Church, the Anglicans, the Lutherans, the Methodists, I have a Methodist background, etc., and as we know, these traditions are guided by a particular book to read certain passages and to sing certain hymns and to have certain psalms that are read out. And what this Dr. Hopkins found was that the lament psalms, the psalms that talk about suffering, were conspicuously oftentimes left out at these liturgical churches. And so you would get to a lament psalm and you just kind of skip over it and get to the happier psalms or go to the ones that speak about blessing. And if you are honest, I suspect that you may have been guilty of that yourself. I am often guilty of that. And then there was another study that was done that looked at Presbyterian and Baptist hymnals. Remember when we sang hymns out of hymn books? <laughs> And the study was asking the question, how much do we lament as Presbyterians and Baptists in our hymnals? And the study noted that if you look at the, tip, the typical Baptist or Presbyterian hymn book, 80 to 85% of the hymns are psalms or hymns of celebration. Of all the good things that God has done, and only about 15% of the hymns in the Baptist and Presbyterian hymn books could be identified as hymns of lament. And then there was also a study done on the contemporary worship songs, like the style of music that PBC has adopted. Unfortunately, also in an American context. And it was found that about 5 to 10 of the top 100 songs related to lament in some way. Only 5 to 10 out of 100. Now out of this we can ask the question, what kind of theological ethos, what kind of theological imagination have we created with the absence of lament in our worship? Now I believe that this is a very important question for us to ask ourselves in our African in our South African context. Because in our context, we see suffering on a daily basis. And here in Pinelands, you don't even need to leave your home to see suffering. Because the least of these will come and scratch in your bin, will come and ring your doorbell, looking for something that will bring relief. The Korean-American theologian Sung Chun Ra says that, and I quote, 
The absence of lament has led the church to an exceptionalism and triumphalism that has been extraordinarily destructive. And we have lacked the spiritual discipline of love and humility expressed through lament and therefore have ended up with this dysfunctional exceptionalism and triumphalism. End quote. We'll come back to that thought a little bit later on. But now I want us to see what we can learn from the book of Lamentations and more so from the book of Jeremiah that would help us to move forward in our acts of love and humility and mercy and justice as we pursue the ministry of reconciliation. I just want to read the first two verses of chapter 1 of the book of Lamentations and then later on we'll look at Jeremiah. This is what the, the first two verses say. How deserted lies the city, one so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. The book of Lamentations is written in a very particular historical context. And it's really greater detail from what we read about in the book of 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25. So it's the fall of Jerusalem and Israel as a nation has fallen apart because of their rebellion and the idolatry towards God. And God then sends judgment. And so first the Assyrians come and then the Babylonians come and they completely laid waste to the nation of Israel. Jerusalem, which is kind of the last stand for Israel, is eventually wiped out as well. And those first two verses that we read now from Lamentations describe Jerusalem's fall and destruction in poetic language. The Babylonians who conquer Jerusalem, they wipe out the people, they take away into exile anybody who would be able to rebuild that society to come and build their own empire. And those people who they took with them included the prophets, the priests, the engineers, farmers, craftsmen, metal workers, business owners, people who could read or write. All of the most talented and able-bodied people were taken. And they took these people away into Babylon, into exile. Which of course, as, as we know, is where we encounter the story of Daniel and his friends. And so the only ones who are left in Jerusalem, the people who they leave behind, are the widows, the orphans, the sick, the lame, the blind, the most marginalized and the disenfranchised of that society. And the book of Lamentations is the voices of those people who are left behind. Now this is the setting of the brokenness of the nation of Israel. 
where the idolatry and disobedience of the Israelites had led them to this completely fractured and destroyed society with very little hope of ever rebuilding their nation once again. Now to the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, it precedes the book of Lamentations, is actually tied to the book of Lamentations. Now we don't know who wrote Lamentations, but it is strongly believed to be Jeremiah. Now in Jeremiah chapter 29, and we won't read it for the sake of time, but I'm sure many of us are familiar with Jeremiah 29 because of verse 11. That's often taken out of context. We read a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the Israelite exiles who were taken captive to Babylon. We don't have time to read it, as I said. But in this letter, Jeremiah offers two different approaches or two actions that the Israelites could take while they are in exile. And he unpacks for them what that way of being, what that lifestyle would look like for those broken people. And the first thing he says to them is don't think about giving up or running away or hiding. He tells them they don't have that option. He rather says continue to live your life even though you lost your homeland, even though your land was taken, even though you've lost your identity as God's chosen people. And he says to them in verse 7 of chapter 29, he says, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Can you imagine how hard it must have been for those people to hear that? That they were to seek prosperity for. To pray for those wicked people who had taken so much from them and enslaved them. And the prophet Jeremiah tells them not to run away, not to run away or to shed their identity as God's chosen people. Now, if we bring that principle from 2,600 years ago, that principle that says, don't give up, but live with honor. If we bring that into our 21st century lives now, what does that say to us now? I think Craig highlighted some of it for us last week. When we look at the history of the evangelical church, we see that it has seen a pattern of behavior in certain departments for the church to give up when things got difficult, when challenging circumstances arose, there was a tendency to disengage, to not even engage. In our own context, during the time of apartheid in our country, why weren't more churches outspoken about the injustice? As we reflect on that now, we can note that at that time decisions were rather made to a large extent based on fear rather than love and honor and mercy and justice. Pinans Baptist Church 
desires to be a diverse church. Becoming a truly authentic diverse church is not easy. It is hard. The easiest way to achieve church growth, as Craig pointed out for us last week, is to stay the way that you are and to appeal to people who are exactly like you. Don't try to draw people who don't look like you. Don't try to draw people who don't sound like you, people who don't have your culture, people who don't have your style of worship. Don't do that. That is way too uncomfortable and challenging. But for us, we have chosen to accept this mandate, to be the diverse church that we are called to be. And unfortunately, that brings with it challenge, and it brings with it struggle, and it should also bring with it lament. The second option that the prophet Jeremiah offers is found in verses 8 and 9, and this is what he says to them. He said, Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Now, at that time, the practice of divination was one of the major magic arts practices of the Babylonian people. And the, the idea of divination was that you can get exactly what you want by following the magic formula. If you make the right kind of sacrifice at the correct time and the right priest oversees it, then you will get your desired overcome outcome at least. And so the temptation then was to give in and to just do what the culture does. Follow that formula that everyone else is following. And if they were to follow along and use this magic formula that the rest of society was doing to get by, then they would be okay. And we see here Jeremiah heeding them, don't do that. Don't give in to that. Now what do we take from that today? I think one thing that we see is the temptation to apply a formula that the dominant culture believes to be the way to fix the problem. Because oftentimes that problem-solving action is devoid of love and humility and lament that leads to healing that oftentimes goes beyond just problem-solving. When hurt has been caused, on many occasions the story of suffering is swept under the carpet in order not to create discomfort or bad feelings. And I think herein lies the value of lament, and we see it in the book of Lamentations, in that it provides a truthful telling of our whole story with honesty as it is. And so wanting to move to problem-solving too quickly leads to a resolution that may be incomplete and it may lead to a resurgence at a later stage of undealt with hurt. You know, when you, when you find yourself needing to be counseled 
through an issue that has affected you, that has hurt you, the counsellor that you go and see will ask you to tell them the whole story with all the nasty and ugly details, as hard as it is. Knowing that to get complete healing, there is a need to unpack all of the hurt so that it can be dealt with. Now that process of being counseled, of being um, led through, that process of having your feelings hurt, that process of, of um, expressing your pain and your hurt could also be viewed as a process of lament. But unfortunately, our culture and our churches are uncomfortable with pain and suffering. Partly because we live in a cultural context that upholds triumph and victory, but fails to engage with suffering. And when a community does not recognize that parts of its community are in pain, then it does not recognize a true need for a message of hope. And in that circumstance, there is then no need. There is no felt need to lament because things are good and they do not need to change. But then also there is no need for good news either. And by extension, no need for Jesus. The Western Church often has no reason to lament. It has enough wealth, enough power and resources to be comfortable enough to celebrate its circumstances. And so within that context, things don't have to change. There is no desire or need for the church or society to change its relationships, its systems or how it relates to the world around it. And also, unfortunately, there are many on the margins of the church and society for whom lamentation is part of their life experience. Injustice, poverty, illness, tragedy, and even death are ever-present for those people. And if we fail to engage the least of these with lament, then we may fail to create a place for them amongst us. Because for them, lament has in a sense become part of who they are. And if the affluent Western Evangelical Church for whom triumphalism and exceptionalism is their theological ethos, if they want to step in, then they will find themselves struggling to engage with love and humility and mercy and justice unless the principle of lament is employed. Now, unfortunately, these are not solely the experiences of those outside of the church. It is also the experience of many within our evangelical churches. So what do we do? I think the first thing is that we need to recognize that lament should be adopted as a lifestyle. And if we adopt this as a lifestyle, if we pick it up, then we must realize that we are also going to need to let go of some other things. Also, I think what we can do is 
when, when we look at Scripture and we, we recognize the examples that we see in Scripture, in the book of Lamentations, in the book of Job, in Psalms, and woven into many other Scriptures, then we may see then that we are being taught that we ought to allow lament to run its course. Because oftentimes the attempt of human comfort to diffuse and minimize the emotional response of lament doesn't help the one who is in pain, doesn't help the one who is suffering. And it may in fact add to their suffering in the long run. It seems as though our appropriate response should be to be present, to incarnate ourselves like Jesus did into places of pain and suffering and to express lament along with the ones who are suffering rather than to try and explain the suffering and the pain away or to be too quick to problem solve. But most of all, invite the Father Invite the Son, invite the Holy Spirit into that space and commit to walking a path as stewards of God's grace with one another as we seek to see God's kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and incarnated himself amongst us as people who had turned away from you as people who had decided to walk a path that did not include you thank you that you sent Jesus to be with us in our suffering and in our pain to walk that road with us to lead us to freedom and Lord as we consider this principle of lament this morning won't you come and make it clearer to us what it is that you are wanting to say to us today? Because we eagerly desire to see your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name.